Good morning. Welcome to Keystone. How are you guys doing this morning? Good? Good? All right, I like it. I have a little bit of feedback. I'm going to need that. But uh, glad you guys are with us, um, whether you're here in the flesh this morning or tuning in online. Um, if you're new here, um, like grandma roped you in this weekend, she guilted you into it, or you wanted to come on your own, glad you guys are with us. My name's Ryan King. I work with our students here, um, and I'm just glad to be here. I love I love doing the, um, like the holiday, me- like I'll do a lot of the holiday messages, because I feel like I'm kind of like Keystone's Santa. I, I show up on the holidays, you know, and I like it because you guys, like, you're having good food on the weekend, you got some extra days off, and you're ready for an extra, like, zesty teaching. Like, it's all wrapped up together. Keystone Santa, I'm here to bring gifts and joy. It's going to be a good time. So, um, I was, I loved, have you guys had a good July 4th? Like, good one? Is, are you guys exhausted from just the fireworks going until, like, 3 a.m.? That's what it was like in my neighborhood. It was like, it was horrible. Did you guys, hopefully you guys have had a good one. You've, you've shot a gun. You've said ye ye. You said happy America to some people. It's been a good one. I was walking yesterday. I was walking my dog yesterday and there drifted across my neighborhood the most divine aroma of all time. It was a charcoal grill. I just smelled it coming through and I was like, is that heaven on earth? I don't know. There's something for me. I love grilling. Like, I absolutely love to, like, grill foods. I love when, like, people get together for grilling. And maybe it's, like, nostalgia, because, like, our family, whether we are, like, camping or at the beach or we just be hanging out at our patio at our house, I love when we were, like, grilling together, like, grilled meats, all of these good things. Um, my dad's here this morning, so I had a joke. Um, well, I'm going to still say it. My dad always burned the, the hot dogs. So I don't know if your dad does this, but my brothers would always make fun of my dad for burning the hot dogs, and we were always confused, because they're already pre-cooked meat tubes. So it's like, I don't know. I still love, I still love you, Dad, wherever you are. If you see him, don't grill him too hard on it. But um, that, it was just always like a fun thing. Like in summertime, it's always the best food. You know, there's, there's burgers, chicken, steaks. Uh, if you're a vegan, bean burgers, cool for you. Um, and like there's watermelon, deviled eggs, coleslaw. Like the spread during the summertime, it's a good, like it's a good spread. You know you're eating well in the summertime. But it's not just like the food. I absolutely love like some of my best like memories are during the summer when the family would gather together our patio table or even just like our dinner table. And I love the conversations we had. And even though like my mom had three boys, so a lot of the conversations were like, and if you have a teen or were a teen, you kind of know this, like they'd ask like, how was your day? And you'd be like, oh, right? Like it's not even a word, but it'd be like, oh. and you kind of, your teen also does that like little shake, like they're kind of illusion out of this conversation. Right? I'm like, oh, and you're like, all right, I guess. But my mom was so clever in creating different ways to create conversation. Um, there was this one time we'd have this jar where we had to pull out little things that have little questions we'd ask the family. And I was talking to some friends this week, and they said, um, they did highs and lows. So like, what's the best part of the day? The worst part of your day? Or um, some friends would ask like, what are you gr- like the most grateful for? Um, or even a creative one, there was, uh, they had like a little sheet of paper and then somebody at the table got to roll dice and then they could have a conversation based on what the dice would roll. Like there's this culture created around the table where, where people came together and they shared life and they talked about life. And one of the coolest things I think is that that, you know, Jesus on earth, he was, he was the son of God. He was God made manifest. And he participated in things just like that, in dinners and meals and hanging out around the table. And in our teaching today, that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at a, a conversation Jesus had at a dinner party. 
Something really simple, but I think really poignant and powerful. And, and our story today, it comes from, if, if you're a person that likes to read along, it comes from the book of Luke. So Luke, he's this historian, this doctor. He, he kind of captured some of these like secondhand accounts to understand what was Jesus's life really like. And he paints this picture of, of this conversation around the dinner table. And if you want to read along, we're going to be in uh, Luke 14 today. Um, But before we jump in, to catch anyone up to speed, we're in this series called The Storyteller. Because Jesus, he was so fascinating in the way that he he captivated his audiences with stories. And he would meet people right where they're at. Like he'd be with farmers and he would would slip them a story. Somebody would ask a question. And instead of answering that, he he would tell a story. And it would allow them to answer the question with what they found. He was, he was captivating. He was brilliant. All through the series, we've been looking at the stories Jesus told, these things that the religious people have called parables, but they're just these brilliant stories, and we're going to unpack one around the dinner table. So Jesus is hanging out at a house. A guy, his name is Simon the Pharisee. It's a, it's a Sabbath night. There's a ton of people over. It's a Middle Eastern, busy, bustling. It's loud. It's crazy. And he's having dinner with some people, and this cultural moment happens. This, like, this, this moment happens. Jesus observes it, and he kind of makes a commentary on it. But before that, we have to ask the question, who would have been at the dinner party. There's, there's two groups that we definitely would have known would be at the, the dinner party. The first one, because of the host, would have been just religious professionals. The religious professionals would have definitely been there because that's who the host was. He was a, a religious professional. There's a group of people called, um, and we know people just like this, but they're called Pharisees. They were so like captivated on keeping the rules, staying true to the rules. Now, at one point, that was a good thing, But they had moved to this point in time where they were so caught up in the rules they had forgotten about love. And they would have had all of their cronies with them, the lawyers and the scribes, who were making sure that everything everyone else did followed this set of strict rules. And if you didn't do the rules right, then, hey, you're, you're out, you're punished, you're, 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 you're done, right? Like, they would let you know if you broke the rules, and it would be severe. And we know people like this. Right? Maybe, maybe you've landed here at Keystone because you've experienced religious professionals in your life. Like we, We're trying to be a church that invites all people in. And, and you know, we don't have it all figured out, but we believe that, that we're, just, we're just trying to pursue love and Christ together. But, but some of us have experienced the religious professionals that have told us, hey, you're not keeping to this set of rules. So you, you were burned, you were kicked out. And, and if that's you today, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry if you have experienced that. Because a lot of the time, I mean, I could be called a religious professional. But uh, as we're going to see in our story, there's something more than just the rules that we should follow. Now, there's a second group of people that would have been at the party. So there's religious professionals. And then this group, they they were always at the parties. They were always with Jesus because they were always following him. They were simply the followers of Jesus. Jesus. And it's cool. I love the followers of Jesus because they're this like ragtag group of oddball outcasts that don't really belong anywhere. And I imagine they're like weird at a party. Like if they're hanging out in this like little Middle Eastern like like dinner party with all these religious professionals. Like if you know some of the characters, there's Peter. He's like this loudmouth fisherman. And I bet he's like one of the ones who like caught a fish this big at the party. He's telling like this big fish story. And the rest of the guys are like, I don't think that's how it happened. Just like your dad's going to tell that story to his work friends about how he caught that little tiny fish. But he's going 
couldn't tell. It's going to be real big. So he's like bragging about the fish, you know. And then there's, there's uh, this guy named Matthew, the tax collector. And he's probably like, if you had a July 4th party, you have that one cousin who's super emo, who stands in the corner, wears all black, listens to My Chemical Romance. And he's like, he's like hanging out there. And he feels weird because he definitely doesn't belong at a party with these religious people because he was one of the ones that had betrayed the people, broken the rules, and they wouldn't have liked him. And then there would have been this one guy, and I think he, this last guy, is definitely one of the most relatable. His name's Simon the Zealot. He was super zealous about religion and about, like, Jewish culture. He would give him cabinet. He was like, guess what? You know, we're going to follow God so much that we're going to overthrow the government and we're going to restore God's rule and it's going to be fantastic, but the government's got to go. Like, you know this person at your party. It's the crazy uncle. It's the crazy aunt, the one who's always telling you about all this conspiracy theories. He would have been there. And what's captivating is all of these ragtag people, they're people we know, right? They're people that are they're just like us. And, and I love this because the party 2,000 years ago feels a whole lot like a party we would have experienced today. Maybe it's the party you experienced yesterday night, where it's all of these different people with different beliefs and different characteristics wrapped together at this one party. But what's captivating is even though the people and the characters are the same, there would have been these cultural practices that would have been very different. There's one in specific that we're going to hone into today. And we're going to call this cultural practice the chair game, which if you notice, we have some chairs on the stage. You're like, why are the chairs there? Here it is, the chair game. They had this practice, and they wouldn't have thought of it as a game. It was just something that they did. And the way that the chair game essentially worked was that there would have been the most honored place which the host would have sat in. So imagine there's a table that shares on this side, that side, and the host is sitting here. And he is the most honored. He's the one hosting the party. Of course he is. And then what would, would happen is down the line of chairs, however long the table was, it would have gone in descending order of honor. Descending order of honor. So the, the rightmost seat would have been the most honored seat. And then down the line. And what's interesting about this is how did they determine honor? There's a couple of characteristics. So one is age. So if you were older, you were considered wiser, and you would be more honored. You'd have a higher place up. It's just like how you get the senior discount at New Beginnings Restaurant. We honor you with cheap breakfast food. They honor you by sitting at the table. I don't know. They do that. And then the next one would have been wealth, because back then they believed God's blessing was correlated with your wealth. So if you were more wealthy, you were more blessed. That would move you up the table, and so on and so forth. Your status, your titles. So when they went to sit down, there would be this awkward moment where they're all evaluating each other based on the age, the status, the, the income, and they're trying to figure out, where do I sit at this table? But they would all be trying to push for the higher seat of honor. So basically, and maybe this is like flashing some, some lights for you, you're kind of feeling it out. Basically, you would evaluate your importance contrasted to the people around you. You'd evaluate your importance based on the people around you. Again, maybe this is clicking some bells because it's not 2,000 years ago. We play the chair game in our society today. So we're going to dive into the story. So, so Jesus watches all of these people scramble for, for chairs of honor, and they're evaluating, and they're calculating, and they, they all sit down, and then Jesus stands up, and he tells what would have been a very uncomfortable story. And it goes like this. So it's Luke 14, 7, if you want to read along with us. 
When he noticed, so when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this story or this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. It goes on to say, then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And he ends with this. Then you will be more honored in the presence of all the guests. And he gives us a thesis. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And it's, it's a captivating story, but it's definitely very weird for us today. And it would have been weird for them because they just played the chair game, and then Jesus kind of tells a story that scolds them a little bit. And I can just imagine them sitting there just like kind of being like, like feeling weird because Jesus just like threw down on them gently, but it would have felt strange because they're all trying to think, well, I just took this place, this place of honor. Do I deserve to be here? Do I not deserve to be here? And again, so if, if we were to boil the story, let's boil it all down to like one question, one idea, because I think this is a question Jesus could have asked all of those people at that table. The question is this, what if self-promotion is not our job? What if self-promotion is not our job? That's something he could have said to them back then, but it's definitely he could, it's something he could say to us now, because you might know this. I'm about to reveal something that you might not have known, but you are actually a master of self-promotion. We all are masters of self-promotion. And I'll give you a couple of examples of, of how the chair game correlates to our lives. And, and the most obvious one is the cursed and infestation that is known as social media, in which that, that, that it, it's, social media is this thing where we, we create, we, we showcase the best of our lives. And there's good intent a lot of the time, but we showcase the best of our lives to contrast it with other people so that we may gain likes and status, that people will see it and they'll think that we are successful, that we are confident, that we have our lives together. But it's always the best things. We've curated an image. We are masters of self-promoting, promoting the best life to other people. And if you don't have social media, media, you are already living a blessed life. So if you have no idea what I'm talking about, continue living your blessed life. But it's also, if you attended one of the just millions of grad parties that were invited to every single year, it happens at the grad party. Uh, you, you've graduated college and adults and all of their inability to have creativity ask you a question that goes along like this. What are you going to do with your entire life? <laughs> You're like, I don't know. I just had to ask to go to the bathroom like three weeks ago. You want me to tell you how I'm going to live the rest of my entire life? But we ask this question, right? And, and students have to wrestle down this idea of self-promotion because they go, well, you know, I, uh, I applied to 16 different colleges. I got into MSU, U of M, and GVSU. I went to GVSU because it's way better than all of the other ones. And, uh, you know, I'm thinking of going into biochemical engineering because I'm good at math. And you start to weave this story. You start to... to Create this facade that you know what you're doing. You know what the future is in store. 
So that adult will go on and eat their sherbet, and you can text, talk to the next adult that's coming to your grad party to ask you the same question. We're masters of self-promotion. Or even the way we spend our money, a lot of the time we buy things we cannot afford to impress people we do not like. <laughs> right? We buy things we can't afford or don't even need to impress people we don't even like. Like, seriously, I... I bought these collared shirts for standing on a stage on Sundays because I hate wearing collared shirts. Because I want you to think I have my life together. Oh, he's a young professional. I'm not. I like a t-shirt and Adidas short, like t-shirt and Adidas shorts. That's how I'm rolling, right? But I want to project an image of confidence and and self-promotion. I want you to like me. We buy things we don't need to impress people. A lot of time we don't even like. Right? This is the, 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 the self-promotion, the chair game we play in our own lives, and it's everywhere. It's, it's at work, it's at family, it's everywhere. It's, it's, almost like, it's almost like we're carrying around this business card. This business card that, that has all of our self-importance uh, and achievement written on it, and we're ready to hand it out at any instance, just in case. We carry around this, this, this weird little business card because we hate it. This is the truth of it. We hate it when we realize somebody's trying to put us in a chair, right? For that grad, they're, they're asking that question because they want to see if you've got your life together and you want to you be up on the thing. You want grandma to go tell grandpa how great you are. So you're going to weave a story about how you've got everything together, right? We hate it when people put us in chairs, but we also find it very easy to put other people in chairs, right? That's the game. And, and it's almost like when you realize somebody's doing it, there's this desperate like, need within us where we're like, no, 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 here's my credentials. Here's all the things that I've done. Here's how impressive I am. And I think it's, it, it can be devastating because then we're not able to live our true selves. And it, let's take a quick step back because uh, what I, I don't want you hearing like promoting yourself is inherently bad. I think there's a wisdom where we have to thread the line because there, you should self-promote yourself in, in some categories. Like if you are somebody like you're a skydiving instructor... I want to know you've skydived before, so I want you to tell me that, because I don't want to be falling through the sky, and they're like, do you know how the parachute works? And I'm like, I don't know how the parachute works, right? Or like, I'm getting married soon, so I want to know that our photographer knows how to operate more than the iPhone 12, right? I want something more professional. Or I don't want to be sitting in a surgery, and the surgeon to be like, ooh, this is a weird, squishy thing. I don't want you saying that. I also don't want to be hearing you saying things in general. I don't want to be awake during that, right? Right? There's, a, there's an element where we should know your experience and we should know that you're good at your job, but we have to weave this fine line where it goes to like, I'm being prideful or I'm being proud of my work. And it's a very fine line because we should showcase experience, but it's very easy for that to become pride. So let's rewind a bit and let's get back to that dinner table where Jesus just told this story. And, and if we're thinking about the people that were there, who should have understood the story Jesus just told? Who should have really got it the most? And I think it would have been his followers, his disciples, the people who said they gave everything to follow him. They go, ah, uh, yes, the last will be first and the first will be last. Like they're remembering things Jesus 
said. They, they would be sitting, I assume, down the line of the table, but they'd be going, ah, oh, we understand this. But what's fascinating is when you flip a few pages ahead in the book of Luke to Luke 22, again, if you want to follow along, Luke records another story. And I wonder if while he writes it down, the stark irony of the story is, is hitting him. Because uh, Luke writes this moment, it's in uh, 2224, and I'm going to use the message edition because I feel like it captures some emotion really well. And it says this in Luke 22. Can you throw that out for me? Within minutes, so they just sat, they just sat at the table. Within minutes, they were bickering over who of them would end up the greatest. Which chair would they belong in? Because they know Jesus is an important guy. They're calling him the king of kings. So they want to be the right-hand man. They're bickering over who gets the most honor. But Jesus intervened and said, kings like to throw their weight around and people in authority like to give themselves fancy titles. It's not going to be that way with you. It's not going to be that way with you. Let the senior among you become like the junior and the leader, the part of the servant. I, I, am, I get so frustrated at the disciples because over and over, it's so obvious that they just didn't get it, right? Just a few moments before they were at a table, Jesus told the story, they got the idea, and then here they are doing the very thing Jesus told them not to do. But I also find this so incredibly comforting because I am just like that. I teach messages like this, I sit in rows like you guys, and I hear all the things, and then I go into the real world, and I sometimes just completely forget. And, and I find it wildly comforting that the disciples are just like me, because the way that Jesus reacts to them is so incredibly beautiful and grace-filled that he continues to lead them and guide them. And what's fascinating about that story, like where they're bickering and arguing yet again, is this is actually the Last Supper. This is the last moment they have with Jesus before he's betrayed, before he's captured by a mob, before he's beaten, condemned, and nailed to a cross. It's the Last Supper, the last moment they get with Jesus, and they're fighting about who gets to sit where. But Jesus, in all his love and all of his grace, reaches them in such a beautiful way. Because he, he, he says this next. He talks to them, and he says, who would you rather be? And this is a question he's asking us today. Who would you rather be? The one who eats the dinner or the one who serves the dinner? And he just tells the truth because we might not admit the truth, but we all know the truth. You'd rather eat and be served, right? But I've taken my place among you as the one who serves. Jesus dishes it out cold. He says, you'd rather be served, right? But I, God, made man, decided to come in a way that I was serving you. I think it's so beautiful because what happens next is Jesus gets down on a knee and he grabs a bowl of water and he grabs a towel and he washes the feet of the disciples. And this is a weird moment. This is a weird moment for us, and it's probably a weird moment for them. But he would have washed the dusty, stinky, nasty, sweaty feet that I don't want to touch. But he washed every single person at that table because he came to love us. He came to serve. And I think it's so beautiful because not only did our God, the God of all things, come to earth as a man, but he came as a servant. 
Not only did the God of all come as a man, but he came as a servant, and that is wild to me. And it's like the the picture I need, because I need like a concrete picture for this. It's like I imagine if you have little kids or have interacted with them, it's so, so much more compelling when you get on a knee and you get on the kid's level, and you talk to them, and you show that you care, and you say, I, I'm with you. I'm at the same level of you. I, I care for you. I, I, I want to be with you. As an adult kneels to care for a child, so does God kneel here on this earth to care for us. Like, I think it's so convicting that he came as a servant, as a servant, humbled and on the cross humiliated, but he cared so much. God kneels to serve us. And that's wildly convicting. That's wildly convicting. And all the while, we're bickering and trying to play the chair game. We're looking at all the people around us and trying to compare our status and our life and our quality of life based on the people around us. And there's a very simple way in that that moment that Jesus demonstrated, there's a simple way to break the chair game in our lives. It's three words, and they're really hard. It's humility, honesty, and vulnerability. These are the things that Jesus displayed over and over and over again. Humility, honesty, and vulnerability. And sometimes, sometimes these words come for us like a wolf attacking. Sometimes you get humbled and you get humiliated. Sometimes at our own cause. I, have a, I had a friend in high school, still, she, she's still my friend, um, and I remember we went to school. We were going to school at the same time. We were both seniors. It was at my grad party. And I did just a terrible thing for a friend to do. I told her, because I had these dreams of what I was going to be in school and where and how great I was going to be. And I remember telling her, like, hey, we might not hang out as much because I'm going to be doing my own thing. And like, I said that, like, hey, I might not be your friend because I have great dreams, right? It was terrible. It was horrible. But that's what I said to her. And, and I look back and I go, I'm so ashamed of that. But what's crazy is, is my fall semester came around at school, and it was the worst semester of my entire life. I couldn't make friends. I didn't like my roommates. I didn't like school. Uh, the girl I liked at the time broke my heart. It was, I fell apart, and I found myself at Jamie's dorm room. I knocked on the door, and I had to eat my words from just a few months ago because I desperately needed somebody. And I could have sat in my own brokenness, but in vulnerability decided, hey, I'm going to eat my own words, eat my own pride, and reach out to somebody because I desperately need help right now. The way that humility and honesty and vulnerability play out, I mean, at the grad party, how powerful is it for a grad to be like, you know what? I don't really know what I'm doing with my future. You know, I'm, I'm trying to do the things that I think are best based on the people I trust, but I don't really know. Because that's really powerful. Because if you're 27, 33, 44, or beyond, you don't really know what you're doing with your life anyways. We all are pretending to know what we're doing. And if you know what you're doing, you can email me because you're the person I want to talk to. Right? How powerful is that at 18 to admit, I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm making it up as I go. I've got a few things I'm going on that's powerful, and there's confidence in that. Or I think of, for some reason in our culture, 
We've treated stay-at-home parents as like second-class citizens. Like raising human beings is not as cool as going to an office to work on a computer, right? Like if you're a stay-at-home parent, there's this weird moment when people ask you what you do or why you do what you do, where you, you play the chair game and you try to justify why you're raising kids instead of going, hey, I think my time, my energy being dedicated to raising these small little people is the most valuable thing I could do with my time. Yes, they put crayons and boogers on the wall, but they are worth it. Right? There's power and confidence in that and knowing why you're doing what you're doing. You don't need to justify yourself. Tell them your achievements and your greatness. Just being confident in who you are and what you're doing and where you are at in the moment. It's so much more beautiful. And this kind of humility, honesty, and vulnerability, like it can come for us like an attack, but really most of the time it's something we have to put on like a shirt or a coat. Every day, recognizing that we are to, to put ourselves at the end of the row of the chairs. That takes a whole lot of work, but daily, it's just like putting on a coat saying, you know what, I'm going to be down there. And being at the end of the chairs, th- th- there's this idea like, oh, if I put myself down there, then I'll be elevated. No, if we're, if we're going to put ourselves down at the end of the chairs, we're going to say, my actions down here, my actions of being humbled are going to be the ones that really speak about who I am and what I want to do with my life. I don't really care about the status, I just care about following Christ. This is the message, if you are a follower of Jesus, that we are meant to do, because Jesus was a terrible marketing strategist. He had terrible public relations. He literally would do a miracle and be like, don't tell anyone about this. And you're like, well, I don't want to tell somebody about this. This is amazing. But he was focused on just serving and loving. It wasn't about the acclaim. It was about the moment and the relationship. And I think that's so beautiful because it sets an example for us. So I, I want to wrap all of this up. Uh, and I have two challenges because I kind of like some of the specific things that helps me figure out how am I to work this out in my week. Um, one is a little bit generic, but to a specific group of people. And then one is maybe a place you can put some of the things from today into action, which are the honesty, humility, and vulnerability. The first, the challenge is to guys. If you are a guy, a boy, a man, a young adult, whatever, I think this challenge needs to hit us a little bit harder than, than other people because I'll be honest, I think we are terrible at humility, honesty, and vulnerability. Because our society has told us what we have to do. We have to project strength. We have to project that we know what we're doing. This is why we don't read instruction manuals, because we already know everything, right? Guys, we need to, to put on that cloak of humility and honesty and vulnerability far more, because we can do a lot of damage when we don't. Our partners, our friends, our families, our communities desperately need us to be real and honest with where we're at. It's okay to have emotions. It's okay to have past trauma. It's okay to go to counseling. It's okay to go to therapy. It's okay to admit that you don't have everything together. That is far more powerful than projecting an image of strength because the image is just the facade. And then you're left alone. I think that there's a very like real conviction. And if you're like a young, like a young man, a teenager, I really want you to take this to heart that it's okay to share how you're really doing and what's really going on in your life with people because you need to invite people in. Because projecting this idea and playing the chair game can leave you really lonely. And our communities desperately need real, loving, humble men. Okay, so the next one, this is more of a fun for everybody, how you can challenge yourself maybe to play this out this week. Um, And it goes all the way to the back, to the top of the, the thing. How does honesty, humility, 
and vulnerability play itself out at your dining room table? How does it play itself out in in the place where you have your meal with people every day or at lunch or with breakfast? Because I think we can really start to transform our world with the people we are the closest with. For kids, it means sitting at the table and really answering a question with real words, right? And realizing that your parents care so much about you, they want to know about your day, even though it's probably really boring, right? They still want to know about it. And parents, it's having, it's having the, the vulnerability to, like, be sad when they're not asking, like, answering your questions, but the persistence to still ask. Maybe it's about sharing how we're really doing, sitting around the table, sharing about how we're really doing. Maybe it's helping mom with preparing the meal. Maybe it's helping dad grill because he's going to burn the hot dogs anyways. Like, servanthood is really small, and it's not really that cool because you're not going to Instagram it, but I guarantee if we can serve when it comes to just the people we gather together for a meal with, man, I think it really will transform our entire lives. Because the power of humility, honesty, and vulnerability as showcased in Christ is a really convicting and powerful thing. If you guys are willing, let's stand and uh, we'll pray together this morning. God, thank you so much. Um, A message about humility and honesty and vulnerability is a hard one, God, to, to speak. Because we have to look to you for, for the reality of what that looks like. Because any human example of it is going to fall short. For me, I know it's a convicting message, God, because I know I'm going to fall short this week. But Lord, it's exhausting playing the chair game. God, it's exhausting being the master of self-promotion. Lord, instead, we want to give that over to you this week and hopefully beyond so that we can instead allow actions of love and service and humility to really speak about where we're at and who we are. God, thank you so much for being a God who loves us, a God that just over and over gives us grace when we mess up in big ways and small ways. Lord, I pray that this can be a place and we can be a people that aren't just so caught up in following the rules and doing the right things, but instead we're just caught up in your love and it naturally transforms us. Lord, thank you for the stories that Jesus told. 2,000 years later, they're just as compelling and convicting, and that is incredible to me. Um, God, I pray for these people this week. I hope they have a safe July 4th, a fantastic one, and I hope... um, They're able to gather around with people this week and serve them in just small and beautiful ways. God, thank you for this day. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thank you guys for joining us. Thanks for tuning in online. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next week for the last part of Storyteller.